Good morning. It's a delight to be back. We are on a series looking at the patriarchs in Genesis. We did uh, Abraham a couple of weeks ago. It's Isaac today in Genesis 26. If you grab that handout that came with your bulletin that has all the verses that I will be dealing with, plus a few blank spaces for you to fill in if you are so inclined. As you pull that out, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that you are a rock, our refuge, our shelter, resting upon whom we will not be shaken. And as we look today into what it means to rest upon you, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Once there was a man who went hunting. He was hunting bears. And as he trudged through the forest looking for those animals, he came upon a large, steep hill. And he began pulling himself up the hill. And just as he arrived at the last outcropping of rocks, a huge bear met him nose to nose. The bear roared fiercely. Our man was so scared that he lost his balance and fell back toppling down the hill with the bear in pursuit. On his trip down the hill, the man lost his gun. And when he finally stopped tumbling, he found he had a broken leg. Life is messy. Escape was now impossible, and so the man who had never been particularly religious, in fact, he was hunting on a Sunday morning, prayed, God, if you will make this bear a Christian, I'll be happy with whatever lot you choose for me for the rest of my life. I'll go to Dallas Bible. I'll give them lots of money. I'll go to Guatemala twice a year. Please just make this bear a Christian. The bear was no more than two feet away from the guy when it suddenly stopped dead in its tracks, looked up into the heavens, and fell to the knees and said in a loud voice, Lord, I thank you for the food that you have given me this time. <laughs> I tell you, life is messy. Even believers give us a hard time. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Everyone against you, antagonism all around. Several years ago, I was an elder in a church in another city that had, that had a dragon in it. Boy, did Milton spew fire from his mouth. His grandfather and his uncle said, literally built this church from scratch about 60 years ago. And so you know Milton's type. They think they own the church. This guy, for some reason, was full of hatred and spite and almost single-handedly split the church in two. A dragon. Nothing was ever satisfactory for Milton. He didn't like our worship style. He didn't like our outreach to the homeless. He didn't like our children's pastor, who finally resigned. He didn't like the senior pastor. And after I came onto the elder board, he didn't like me either. Milton was one bad dragon. Dragons like Milton are everywhere, and you will encounter them if you haven't already. 
Maybe you're experiencing that kind of antagonism right now. How will you deal with such opposition and hostility? I'd like to draw your attention this morning to two rather obscure incidents in the life of the patriarch Isaac from Genesis chapter 26 and learn how we can deal with such enmity. Genesis 26 has two Isaac stories in it. It's like a two-sided coin, one negative and the other positive. But this two-sided, double-sided coin teaches us a single message, how to cope with dragons. The story is actually a flashback and happens before Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, have any children. We'll see why I said that later, but let's head into the story. Genesis 26, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham, Isaac's father. So things are looking bleak. He's in the land of the Philistines and there's a famine, but God asks him to stay put where he is, verses 3 and 4. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you for to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands and establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and give your descendants all these lands and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And an ambiguous promise confirmed by an oath from the creator of the universe. In the midst of this famine, God declares that Isaac will be safe. So number one, God ensures. God ensures. Isaac can be absolutely, positively sure that God is going to keep his word. Now I want us to look again at verses 3 and 4. And try to catch with me as I read it, what is the noun that keeps repeating itself? To you and to your descendants I will give all these lands. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Which word is repeated? Descendants, yes. Four times, descendants, 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 descendants. That's a little odd. Is that significant? Are we supposed to remember it? Hold that thought for a minute. We'll come back to that later. Let's move on with the story. But here's where the story gets a bit hairy. Remember, Isaac is now in Philistine land, verse 7. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She's my sister. For he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. Oh my gosh, Isaac thought, I'm going to die because of this gorgeous wife of man. I'm dead meat before these amorous Philistines. They'll kill me for Rebekah. So his life threatened, he falls apart, resorts to subterfuge, not even caring about his wife's safety. Eight and nine. It came about when he had been there a long time, and I want you to make note of that, a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is certainly your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said I might die 
on account of her. Isaac was terrified, afraid, afraid he'd be killed, afraid for his life. Okay, here is my question now. Was Isaac's fear legitimate? Was it? God was the one who had asked Isaac to stay, sojourn in this land, remain here, verse 3. Surely the God who commanded him to stay put could have protected him, could he not? But there's another reason why I think Isaac's fear was illegitimate. Remember that repeated word in 26, 3 and 4, descendants, 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 descendants. Remember that? Now, if God promised Isaac kids, four times they are mentioned, how on earth would Isaac expect to die before having even a single kid? Remember, all this happened before they had had any children. There are several reasons to believe that it's, this is happening before Isaac and Rebekah had children. For one, if there had already been a couple of twin toddlers running around in camp, their children Jacob and Esau, no one would have ever doubted that Isaac and Rebekah were husband and wife. It would certainly not have taken the Philistines a long time, the phrase we noted in verse 8. So this is happening before they have children. So we go back to the question, if God promised Isaac kids four times, how on earth would Isaac die before having at least one? So the fundamental issue here is that Isaac, afraid for his own life, is actually mistrusting God and his promises. Afraid, scared, faithless. And stricken with fear, he lies, risking the safety of his family. Afraid his blessings, indeed his very life would get stolen. He cares only about himself. You see, the noise of antagonism and potential danger was so loud in Isaac's ears that it drowned out the voice of God's promise. What are you afraid of, Christian? So afraid that we have forgotten God's promises. So afraid we have forgotten that God ensures. Now I'll be the first to admit that there are, there are a lot of things for us to fear. Finances a mess, health falling apart, kids going astray, opposition from others. But has the noise of the world gotten so loud that we don't hear the voice of God? The voice that promises us the constancy of his presence. Hebrews 13, 5 tells us, I will never desert you, nor will I ever leave you. Or the voice that promises us the sufficiency of his grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 tells us, my grace is sufficient for you. Or the promises of his love from which nothing can ever separate us. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. God ensures. We must drown out the scary noises of the world with the sure voice of God. Because God ensures, now here's our response. A, remember the promises. Remember the promises. Fear not, child of God. Ours is a God who ensures. He keeps his word. Remember the promises. In the early days of our country, a weary traveler came to the banks of the Mississippi River. There was no bridge. It was early winter, and the surface of the mighty stream was covered with ice. 
Could he dare to cross over? Would the uncertain ice be able to bear his weight? Night was falling and it was urgent that he get across. So finally, after much hesitation and with many fears, he began to creep cautiously across the ice on his hands and knees. Perhaps by distributing his weight as much as possible, creeping on all fours, he could keep the ice from breaking beneath him. He was about halfway across when he suddenly heard the sound of singing behind him. Out of the dusk there came a man with a horse-drawn load of coal galloping across the ice, merrily making melody as he went on. Here was our guy on his hands and knees, trembling lest the ice be not strong enough to bear him up. And there, as if whisked away by the winter's wind, was the stranger, his horses, his sleigh, his load of coal, upheld by the same ice on which our friend was creeping. Creeping on the promises of God. Creep no more, brothers and sisters. Our God ensures. Remember the promises. Etch them in your mind. Memorize them. Meditate on them. Remember the promises. The three that I mentioned are great for starters, but there are surely many more that we can remember. Back to our story. Thankfully, it all ends well for Isaac and Rebecca. Verses 11 through 14. And so Abimelech, the ruler of the Philistines, charged all the people saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in that same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy for he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household. It actually literally reads he became rich, he became richer, he became the richest. God ensures. He keeps his word and blesses Isaac despite Isaac's failure. So this is side one of the double-sided coin of Genesis 26. While Isaac did not trust God's promises, there is now a positive side to this Isaac coin. Side two. And we'll start there at verse 14. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household so that the Philistines envied him. So here's number two. The world envies. The world envies. And look at what this envious world does to Isaac. Verse 15. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. The Philistines stopped those wells. So what does Isaac do? He digs elsewhere. 19 and 20. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar, Philistines, quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, This water is ours. So the Philistines quarrel for these wells too. So what does Isaac do? Isaac goes someplace else. Verse 21. Then they dug another well. And they quarreled over that too. The Philistines opposed the third round of digging. So Isaac moves over. Verse 22, he moved away from there and dug another well. Every time Isaac hits water, these envious Philistines attack his walls constantly. This was a sustained, ongoing, ceaseless antagonism, a blatant attempt to drive away Isaac from the land. And in the Middle East, no water means no survival. The Philistines were going to take him out. 
He did nothing wrong. He was simply obeying God, doing what God told him to do, minding his own business, and wham, and wham, and wham again, the Philistines were out to get him for no fault of his own, innocent, doing his thing, troubling nobody, and then this. Isaac was like Chippy the parakeet who never saw it coming. As Max Locato tells one of my favorite stories, one second the bird was perched peacefully in its cage singing. The next moment its life changed forever. Its problems began when its owner decided to clean the cage with a vacuum cleaner. She stuck the nozzle in to suck the seeds and feathers from the bottom of the cage. That's when her phone rang, and so instinctively she turned and picked it up, put it to her. She had barely said hello when, zoop, Chippy was gone. The woman gasped, let the phone drop, snapped off the vacuum with her heart in her mouth. She unzipped the bag. There was Chippy, alive but stunned and covered with heavy black dust. She grabbed the poor bird, rushed to the bathtub, turned on the faucet full blast, and held Chippy under a torrent of ice-cold water, power-washing it clean. <laughs> then, of course, the good lady did what any compassionate pet owner would do. She snatched up the hairdryer and blasted the wet, miserable, shivering bird with hot air. <laughs> Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. Are you in a situation like that? Have you lost your song? Suffering through no fault of your own. Get ready. The world envies. And it will throw everything at you. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who decide to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't say all who live, decide to live godly in Christ Jesus may sometimes, occasionally, infrequently be persecuted. No, it says all who decide to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Christian, you will face antagonism to some degree or another. Be assured that the enemy's lethal arrows are trained at you in full force. Now, by God's grace, we don't live in a repressive regime that is antagonistic to Christianity. At least, not yet. But if you have been in a high school or a college campus, you have seen antagonism towards Christians. If you have been in the mission field, you have felt it. It's palpable. But even if you have been relatively unscathed so far, persecution is probably not far away. For all of us. I think it's just a matter of time. Look at verse 21. Then they dug another well and quarreled over it too. So he, Isaac, named it Sitna. Sitna, which means opposition. Listen to it. Sitna. Listen to the consonants S and T and N. Do you know we get the name Satan? from the same Hebrew root. He is going to throw his fiery darts at us. How will we respond? How did Isaac respond? Philistines stop the wells, he moves on. 
Philistines quarrel for the second round, he moves on. Philistines oppose him in the third dig, he moves on. Move and dig. Move and dig. Move and dig. This is really amazing. And you're all going, why is this amazing? Because of what Isaac does not do. He doesn't fight. He doesn't so much as raise a pinky in resistance. Could he have? Look with me at verse 12 through 14. And the Lord blessed him, and the man became rich, and became, continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy, for he, had, for he had possessions of flocks and herds, and a great household. And look with me at verse 16. Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. You see, Isaac was not your average landowner. This guy was an entire enterprise. It was an institution. Abraham, his father, had a homegrown army of 318 men that fought several wars successfully. Isaac wasn't too shabby himself. He, was, he had a great household. And even Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, says, you're too powerful for us. Isaac could probably have gone after these Philistines who were sabotaging his wealth. He could have put their noses out of joint, cooked their geese, knocked their socks off, wiped the floor with them without any difficulty whatsoever. But instead, what does he do? Move and dig. Move and dig. Move and dig. No threats. No reloading weapons. No flash of steel. Just move and dig. Move and dig. Move and dig. In the earlier story, side one, we had a guy who was quaking in his sandals. What happened here? He is quiet and calm and peaceful. Just move and dig. Move and dig. Move and dig. You see, after story number one, Isaac had learned his lesson. He was now trusting in God's promises. He had seen God work. He knew God ensures. He knew God's blessings were his. He knew that no envying world could touch God's blessings in his life. Isaac was trusting God totally. No conflict, no contention, no clashing. What should be our response when the world envies? And here's B, refrain from retaliation. Refrain from retaliation. In the face of unremitting, virulent antagonism, how will our trust in God show outside? Will our attitude and our approach to our opponents be marked by peacefulness like Isaac inside two of his story? Or will we claw and clamor and chafe and complain and clash and confront? When I got onto that elder board at the church in Boston, Milton turned his ire and his fire on me. I was, I was all for ejecting him from the church. In the third Psalm, David writes, Strike all my enemies on the jaw, O God, and shatter their teeth. After a few months of Milton, I confess that that verse came to my mind quite often. Do him in, Lord. Hey, he was attacking poor innocent old me for no good reason, blaming me for events that had happened even before I arrived in that city. And ego and self-righteous anger took over. 
invariably retaliation is related to our own egos. How dare he? How dare anyone touch my wealth? What will our attitudes be in circumstances of antagonism? When the world envies, refrain from retaliation. And the result in Isaac's life, look first at what God had promised Isaac earlier on in the story, verses 3 and 4. Sojourn in this land and I will, number one, be with you and number two, bless you. Remember that. God's promises, number one, to be with Isaac, God's presence, and to bless Isaac, God's blessing. Now, look at how Isaac's enemies responded to him at the end of the story, 28 and 29. They, that is Abimelech and his officers, said, we plainly see that the Lord has been with you. Aha, there is number one, God's presence. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us. Let's make covenant, a treaty with you so that you will do us no harm. You are now the blessed of the Lord. And there is number two, God's blessing. Isn't that amazing? Even the unbelieving world recognizes God's presence and God's blessing upon the Christian. No wonder that Proverbs 16, 7 tells us when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes, the Lord makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. God ensures, remember the promises. The world envies, refrain from retaliation. And trusting God, Isaac even responds with an overture of gracious friendship, 30 and 31. Then he made them a feast, his enemies, and they ate and drank. In the morning they arose and they departed from him in peace. Isaac's trust in God was so complete that he can feed his enemies. So number th three, Isaac entrusts. Isaac entrusts. God ensures the world envies Isaac entrusts. And his response and ours and with Isaac we too can hear a see, reconcile with grace. Reconcile with grace. This is a hard lesson for us to learn and apply. What? Treat those kindly who oppose me? Well, what about my rights? 1 Peter 2.19 tells us, for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. But nobody does that. That's impossible to practice. Two verses down, 1 Peter 2, 21 tells us, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. But, but if I do that, then who, who's going to take care of me? Two more verses down, 1 Peter 2, 23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to to him who judges righteously. Will you trust God to take care of you? Will we place ourselves in God's hands? Because only then can we let go of our egos and let God handle the situation. Only if we trust God, like Isaac did, remembering the promises, refraining from retaliation, reconciling with grace. If the name of an adversary or opponent who has been giving you trouble comes to your mind, even 
as I speak, even as you sit here listening to me. I want you to decide right now that you will remember the promises, refrain from retaliation, and reconcile with grace. Has that person been giving you a hard time? Has pressure been mounting? Are you even dreading seeing them or being in their presence? Entrust yourself to God and remember, refrain, reconcile. Today, this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow, or this week, give them a call, send them an email, set up a meeting, something. Forgive. They may not accept it. They may reject your overtures. That's okay, but God asks us to entrust ourselves to him and take the initiative. Remembering the promises, refraining from retaliation, reconciling at least attempting to reconcile with grace. I struggled with this in my church situation with Milton. It wasn't easy for me. Show grace to those who are attacking you? How odd! How unnatural! But the board of the church did exactly that. The leaders approached Milton and his wife, Wiki, very peacefully and charitably and outlined their concerns. And, and in the interests of keeping the peace... I was asked to stay away from that meeting. <laughs> they knew I might do something stupid. The leaders were not going to act with brute force. They were going to trust God to work. They kept me away. But Milton didn't take all that very well. He and Vicky left the church in a huff, uttering vague threats about lawsuits. Now, I told the others, that's it, we won't see him again, and good riddance too. I was wrong. Recently, several years after I left the city, I got an email from one of the elders, which went this way. Abe, you'll be interested to know that Milk, Milton and Vicky have returned to the church. I know you will rejoice with us <laughs> that Milt is a changed person. Last Sunday, he publicly and formally apologized to the church. I was amazed. He seemed to have learned this lesson, but I think it was I who learned a greater lesson. That I needed to remember God's promises, refrain from retaliation, and reconcile with grace. And look at how Isaac's story ends, verse 30. You know, it came about on the same day, Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. Isn't that amazing? What a great... He, en he entrusts himself to God, and God just continues to bless. Verse 33, so he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Sheba means oath. Beersheba means well of oath. The God who promised can be trusted. Remember the promises. Refrain from retaliation. Reconcile with grace. Oh, and there's an epilogue to my dragon story. Milton, just a few years ago, lost his job in the economic downturn that affected that city. And the church that he so fought hard against actually helped him pay many of his bills. God ensures. Remember the promises. The world envies. Refrain from retaliation. Isaac entrusts. 
reconcile with Christ. Let's pray. Father, these are indeed difficult words for us to apply. But we are thankful for the example that you gave us, negative and positive, through your servant Isaac. Even more thankful for the perfect example that you gave us in your son, Jesus Christ, who embodied all of these. Thank you for warning us ahead of time about the antagonism that we will face. Thank you for promising your presence and your blessing to your children. Teach us to see that ever more clearly day by day and to hold on to you and to entrust ourselves completely unto you as we face these oppositions and antagonisms successfully. We ask these in Jesus' name. Amen.